Well, good evening, everyone. We are uh, we are live. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight we have uh, quite a good episode going on. A pretty long title: segregation, Pentecostalism, and the charismatic movements. Uh, a couple of words, kind of on um, on housekeeping. We are. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I got to take a couple of weeks off and work on my dissertation which was uh, an incredible, incredibly successful couple of weeks. I got to um, take a couple of weeks of vacation from work, and that includes uh, this podcast, this, uh, this show, and um, got a good deal of work done on that. And uh, now it's in the hands of reading committee, and we get to meet about that here in a couple of weeks. So uh, thank you for your patience with me in my absence. And um, now we're going to be getting uh, back into this here the last couple of weeks of uh, church history before we come to the modern uh, moment. And then, as I had discussed in previous episodes, um, we are not going to just start back at the early church again. What we are going to do is take focused studies uh, each Wednesday evening and, and focus on a specific instance or time or event or transition point in history and, and spend the whole night just kind of delving deeply into that. And there's going to be some figures some people, some events that we're going to spend a couple of weeks on. So I'm really looking forward to that. I have the first several lined up, um, and they should be they should be quite uh, <laughs> they should be quite a trip. So be prepared, kind of more in the future. Um, I'm going to keep up all of the 20 centuries of church walk church history walkthrough uh, on um, on the podcast. And for those when I started the YouTube version of this, I'll be keeping those up as well. Um, I believe that started sometime in the 1600s. Um, but then going forward, I'm again, as I say, I'm not going to be doing the chronological walkthrough, uh, kind of what we're doing right now, but I'm just going to do deep dives on, on single events or people or um, even theological controversies. Like if we want to delve into, you know, Arianism as like a theme for a night. Uh, we can see the rise of it, the dealings with it at the Council of Nicaea, the effects that it had on the Vikings, and uh, it, it's really, uh, really a cool way to do church history. And I haven't really seen anyone do it that way, but um, but I find that it's really helpful for myself to be able to dive deep into things like that. So that is the plan going forward. Um, we're still going to be uh, finishing off this chronological walkthrough. Um, as you know, we are in the 20th century. And we're going to continue into that. And then I'm going to have a few things to say about the modern church and where it's probably going and what effects that that's going to have going forward and what it all looks like. So um, I just realized I don't have my glasses on, so that's going to be really fun to read my notes, but <laughs> no worries. All right. So um, so that's kind of the, the uh, housekeeping side of this. Uh, we have maybe, I would probably say towards the end of August, so that's uh, about maybe four weeks worth of the chronological walkthrough. And then uh, for, the, for the school year, we're going to start on the deep dives, uh, topical stuff uh, for the rest of, well, who knows, for the rest of time <laughs> until I go back to maybe uh, uh, some sections of chronological walkthrough. We'll see how it goes. So who knows? I'm not going to try to talk about things a year or two years in advance. But as of right now, that is kind of my intention. So all right, let's get into tonight. If you clicked on this uh, and you have never listened to an episode of mine, which does happen quite a bit these days, um, this is uh, this is a very broad topic that's going to assume 
a familiarity with some of the things that have been going on from the first and second great awakenings um, and and some of the things that are so unique to American Christianity. Um, if you are not familiar with those things, you are going to be a little bit lost in some of this. But um, if you've been listening along, this should be right up the alley, uh, right up the alley of some of the things we've already discussed, the holiness movements, um, some of the millenarian movements of the 1800s that kind of lead right into the, the issues of the 1900s. Um, and uh, the effects culturally that all of this had. So um, while it doesn't seem that things like segregation, Pentecostalism, and the charismatic movements are all necessarily connected, uh, there is a lot of overlap, and they're happening all at the same time, and a lot of them deal with the issues of racial relations, especially in America, which if you are discussing history or church history, you simply cannot avoid uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They're just... There's no reason to avoid it, and there's no way to avoid it if you're going to be uh, if you're going to be truthful about everything that was going on, uh, and that is our goal here. So, um, segregation, Pentecostalism, and the Charismatic movement. So, I want to kind of talk about the background to segregation, some of the issues that had happened in the world uh, that had happened in the U.S. Um, we're not going to talk about it necessarily just on the historical side, but we are going to talk about it on the church history side. Um, the issues of slavery in the Americas uh, was a significant issue, theologically speaking. There was significant disagreement over this, and, uh, and especially as the years went on, as different countries around the world um, abolished slavery, America was one of the last ones to do so, and there was a lot that were arguing for the theological error of it, and there was a lot arguing for the theological acceptance of it uh, in the Americas, uh, specifically because so much of sections of the economy were based on it, um, led to a lot of, uh, let's just say, misinterpretations of scripture and misapplications of such things. Um, so we'll talk about a lot of this tonight. So let's kind of get into it. As we've discussed in the past, any change in a church is going to have a very hard time in old denominations that move slowly. Anyone who's been a part of a committee or a part of leadership in a church that is established and it looks at its history with stars in its eyes, you will know that trying to introduce any amount of change at all is going to be met with a great deal of resistance. It doesn't even matter if the change is moral or if the change is uh, immoral. The change will move very slowly. Uh, in in churches that are designed for the frontier life of early 1800s, change will happen much quicker. And so you will see uh, certain denominations that are able to adapt to the rising abolitionist movement. Um, you will have a lot of, um, of Christians involved in the abolitionist movements, but you will also have uh, ones that have a huge resistance to uh, any type of change, especially when it comes to uh, those that are connected with their culture, with their own mindset, um, and with their own uh, view of history, or even things that have been taught. Um, and so when we deal with issues of slavery, uh, especially when we come to segregation, we have to kind of back up and talk about the ongoing uh, views of slavery in the church, uh, especially in America, um, because there was no small amount of disagreement amongst the church uh, as to how to deal with this thing. And it was not as clean as some people like to 
um, uh, to kind of try to explain it as like there was some, you know, just straight up, you know, northern Christians uh, were on this side and southern Christians on this side or any such thing. That wasn't true for the culture. And that certainly wasn't true for the church. Um, uh, there was no clear split up like that, though the denominations had clear splits over these things, individual Christians, not so much. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that were going on. There was a lot of, there's a lot of things inside the church that were happening. When I say the church, I just kind of mean broadly, right? And so let's talk about one of the least talked about aspects of this, right? And that is uh, the religious status, not of those who were talking about abolition or slavery. Let's talk about the religious status of slaves themselves. Uh, this is something that doesn't get a whole lot of headlines, but it's really, really important. In the early 1800s, you kind of get the setting of this. The, the religion of those who had come from Africa to the Americas um, through the 1700s and through the early 1800s um, was as diluted and affected by slavery and the way that slavery was done as was their languages. Let me explain, okay? When you were a slave owner, one of the things you wanted to do was to ensure the success of both slaves working together under your auspices and for the continuation of either your plantation or your, um, your agricultural setting or whatever the case may be, whatever job you're in. You did not want influence or rebellion. And so you would tend to purchase slaves that were not from the same tribe, that did not share the same religion, or ideally share the same language. And so you have a dilution, a dilution of not only linguistic history, but cultural memory, and especially African religions. And so you will see that a lot of people when they would purchase slaves, they would intentionally purchase slaves from different tribes, different languages, different religious backgrounds, so that those things would not hold them together and that the one thing that would hold them together would be the owner. And so not having slaves from the same tribe or language was enormously helpful uh, in, in the goal of what was uh, intentionally be, being done here. And so you will have a rise of what's called slave religions. And when we talk about slave religions, we're not talking about, uh, you know, lesser forms of Christianity or, or greater forms of African religions. We're just talking about specific religious development that was endemic in the early 1800s amongst those who were still slaves. It was informed by African religious thought. It was informed by African culture, but it was also informed by realizing you're in a Christian world of some sort. Uh, trying to come to grips with how all of that works, uh, and and just an awareness. This happens with anyone who has an awareness of the world being much bigger than they grew up thinking it was. This is something that's happening throughout the world even today, is with the rise of the internet, everybody is learning that the world is much bigger than we ever thought it was, and it affects theories, it affects um, you know conspiracy theories, religious development, and for slaves in the early 1800, it did that for them as well. Now, for a lot of slaves, they were intentionally kept illiterate. And I don't say all of them, for a lot. Um, because if they can read, they can rebel. This was kind of the way it's almost always been the way. Um, but 
much, uh, you have to understand much before the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, m many of the sermons in church uh, and you as a slave would go to church with your slave owner and sit there and listen. M many of the sermons were very, very intellectual in nature, um, uh, very intellectual sermons, very intellectual descriptions of the gospel. Um, when the Second Great Awakening came out in the early 1800s, it really intends itself to appeal not just to the emotion, but to the emotional life and to appeal broadly to the poor and the uneducated or even undereducated. The Second uh, Great Awakening bypassed uh, all of that intellectual sermoning and pushed the gospel into the hands of everyday people, even uh, notably black slaves. And so you will see and that this, this type of movement was very, very... Um, common among the Methodist world and the Baptist world in the early 1800s, and it caused involvement uh, between races, so-called. Um, I will say personally, I do not actually hold that there's different races, but that's a whole nother discussion. But to put it in nomenclature, that there was this understanding that people across uh, different cultures and different backgrounds, slave or free, should be able to at least be exposed to the gospel regardless of educational level, right? Now, you will see this, um, you will see this even in the Second Great Awakening uh, in Methodist circles, uh, most notably a man named Harry Hosier, um, uh, who's, a, uh, who's a black man that was able to preach to white congregations and, and people were open to this in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, in the early 1800s. And so um, it's not as clear cut a history as I think a lot of people think it is. Uh, there's a lot of messiness involved with uh, with the history of, of how it is that certain aspects of this go on. Regardless of such, um, the rise of abolition um, happened, especially in evangelicalism broadly, as far as the church history is concerned. Now here, I'm not, I'm not discussing the cultural side of abolition movements. Uh, that's a class for uh, another time for a history class. Here, I want to talk about uh, in the concept of evangelicalism, and I mean evangelicalism proper in the 19th century evangelicalism term, and that is uh, Puritan theology and pietist um, uh, practice mixed together to become oh, the amalgam that we know of as evangelicalism. Um, it was largely in favor of abolition. Now, that means worldwide evangelicalism. It means in England and in France and uh, and in, in several other places. But in America, there was a lot of resistance in this. Now, there was those who held to it. There was those who did not hold to it. Um, but as far as for abolition, even on the cultural side of things, evangelicalism in the 19th century did play a very large force uh, in abolition and a very large force against abolition. Um, there was stark differences uh, right down the way. But it, uh, for those who are working on the theological side of abolition, uh, of, of doing away with slavery, one of the big questions that came down is, you know, even just as Americans, even if we just see ourselves as American evangelicals, you know, what are we doing having slaves? You know, we, we're thinking about it as Americans, right? We, we complained about taxation without representation, even as American Christians, and somehow we think it is okay to enslave the whole lives of a people. Uh, there were those who saw this as theologically inconsistent, uh, that it is actually a matter of error 
that we have taken this habit, even from the old world, and just brought it straight into the new world. Uh, but there were those who argued that this is a perfectly fine way to do this. Um, if, if you want to kind of de develop it down, uh, no matter who you talk to, and I think everyone kind of looks at this and, and tries to, you know, uh, have this, this idea that I would do better if I lived in those days. I really want to caution us against that uh, kind of pride because that doesn't really comport with reality, right? And so we tend to go like, you know, we look back at this time and go, you know, Methodists and Baptists were largely against slavery. And you go, oh, good. Thank goodness. I'm Methodist or I'm Baptist. I would have been against it. Um, it's not that simple. Um, uh, it's, it's not, it's not as simple as, as, and I say that as a Baptist, it's not that simple to, to just wind back the clock and find out, you know, who's the good guy and to insist I'm in that. But as we get closer in history, that's very tempting to do. And I want to caution us against that, uh, as we look into recent church history, because I, I want us to understand that there was such a disagreement going on about all of these things and that that led to what the modern church is uh, in, in part. Um, you will see, uh, for instance, uh, and I just mentioned Methodists and Baptists were largely against slavery, largely in favor of abolition, right? Because evangelicalism in America, because of several reasons, found a huge home uh, in the Methodist and the Baptist churches. Um, it's also why today, today as in, 2023, the majority of Black Christians today find themselves in Baptist, Methodist, and Pentecostal churches. We'll talk about Pentecostalism in a bit. But that is that is one of the historical reasons why, because there was a large push in the Baptist and the Methodist worlds towards abolition. Uh, now, when I say that, some people go, oh, well, what about this? What about this? Now, just stick with me on this for a second. There tended uh, in the early 1800s, um, while Methodists and Baptists would be in favor of abolition, they would not be in favor of integration in the church. You gotta, you gotta think about that for a second. Just because somebody is in favor of abolition does not mean they're in favor of full integration either. There's, there's a huge spectrum here of people with all manner of cultural beliefs and identities and concepts. Um, and uh, just because somebody's in favor of uh, of one thing does not mean they're necessarily in favor of another. And so you will see the rise even in the Methodist world, and especially actually in the Methodist world, uh, of, of Black Methodist churches. Uh, you will see this in the form of the uh, African Methodist Episcopal churches um, and uh, the, the Zion African Methodist Episcopal, the, uh, largely known as the AME churches. Um, which, if you read their history, is very early on. I mean, we're talking about the African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, was founded in 1814. The Zion African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded in 1821. These have become enormous churches, uh, enormously influential. Uh, independent AME churches uh, are still uh, influential and very largely involved uh, in the development of American Christianity, even today in 2023. Um, if you remember... For instance, there was um, there was that horrific shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, AME Church there uh, in 2015. Uh, what was that? Seven, eight years ago. Uh, that was uh, actually very historic, very old, one of the earliest uh, AME churches uh, there in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, that that kind of 
um, that kind of experience, that kind of relationship, that kind of development uh, comes out of this. Now, now, pay attention to that phrasing, African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? You have connections to Africa. You have connections to the Methodist Church, obviously, uh, which was huge on integration and abolition very early on because Charles Wesley and John Wesley, the founders, were against slavery, uh, largely. And Episcopal. Episcopal has to do more with its structure, but it's also its connection to the Church of England as well on, on at least a tangential basis. But you have this, this kind of swirling concept of developing a unique type of church that's built around the African experience uh, in the early 1800s. So you will see things like this crop up and a lot of it is going to be informed by just their own experience, just like every church is. Um, and you'll see other churches that uh, main lines and you will see some of the, uh, some of the, the broader denominations, especially as the culture heads towards the civil war, um, start to split over massive issues uh, the Baptist denomination, um, at least the organized part of it, not the independent part of it, uh, did split in the 1840s over the issue of slavery. So did the Methodists, by the way. Um, but the Methodists were largely reunited in 1939, right on the eve of World War II. Uh, the Presbyterians also split over this. Now, you got to realize that wasn't over slavery. The Presbyterians split over the Civil War. Uh, so that happens in 1861. Um and by the way, that doesn't even get solved until 1983 uh, with the formation, formation of the PCUSA, where the North and South, uh, I told you, old school denominations take a lot longer to do things uh, than some of these ones that move quickly. Um, you know, it was 1983 when the PCUSA finally uh, came back together uh, with all of that. Here's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't really fully grasp, especially American Christians. Um, is that evangelicals and Protestants outside of America in the 1850s and 60s were nearly unanimous in their condemnation of slavery. The rest of the world got that. Now, that's not true 100 years before that. I want to say that with a caveat. But the rest of the world got, uh, the rest of the world's Christians got there a lot quicker than evangelicals and Protestants largely in America. Um, and one of the main reasons that is, is this is the first country of its kind where it's intentionally designed to be a mixture of all sorts of Christian beliefs without killing one another. And so you're, you're not going to find uh, unanimity. You're not going to find um, absolute agreement. But there is also something very just unique about the way that America thinks about itself in the late 1800s as I don't have to listen to the old world. <laughs> and um, and this would be an instance where they probably uh, and definitely should have. Um, but most evangelicals worldwide were against slavery. But uh, the reality is that there was a much in evangelicalism in the 19th century, in the 1800s, uh, in the Americas that got this question wrong uh, with regards to uh, with regards to slavery based on ethnicity. Um, you know, and so as we kind of pull apart the effects of segregation and the rise of Pentecostalism things, it's kind of important to have a lot of that history in our minds um, because as, as um, history goes on after the Civil War, after emancipation and into Reconstruction and Jim Crow 
and all of these other things that happen in uh, in the late 1800s and early uh, 1900s, it, it really helps us to understand um, why certain sides of the church, certain parts of the church developed in the way that they did. And uh, I am going to use the term uh, black church for a reason, um, not because I think that our color is of any consequence, but simply because that's that's about the best way to describe what's going on at the time, especially during segregation. Um, I think it is an unfortunate reality, but I think it is a reality nonetheless that uh, uh, even in churches, segregation was such a massive part of the existence of this. But this is part of church history. We just have to deal with the realities of it. Um, and, and it's helpful, too, to understand um, why certain things happen. Like, so, for instance, in, in, the, wake of, uh, in the wake of emancipation, right, um, you will find that black Christians... And, and white Christians have a very different concept of worship, a very different uh, approach to doctrine. Uh, even if they agree, the way that they express it is different. And, and even, the, even the focuses of sermons becomes different. We, we pay attention to different sections of scripture. That's not to say that's wrong. That's not to say that's right. It's just simply to say it's part of our history. And we share this history. No matter our color, this is our church. This is, this is what has made us, and it is all informed who we are today in 2023. And so it's part of us. And so it's important to understand that as some of our brothers and sisters were released from slavery in the Americas, um, their experience as slaves hugely affected their development of hymns and hymnody and worship songs and things like this. Uh, it hugely affected the way that doctrine was communicated, um, that there, there was this, um, not just this, this cold kind of, um, and, and, you know, I love scholasticism. I love studying, obviously I'm working on my dissertation, but there, there is, there's something to be said for, um, lesser value in just coldly talking about theology. There should be some involvement of the whole being. And one, one could say that those who had dealt with sufferings, to uh, in a very unusual level at that time period in history, as far as Christians were concerned, uh, at least in the 1800s, the way that they interacted with doctrine uh, and, and the way that they saw it affect every part of their being, rather than just appealing to the mind and figuring these things out philosophically, is really quite astounding and something worth, worth a lot of study in its own right, and probably one of those deep dives we're going to do here in the future. But I do want, just for sermons, I just want to illustrate this for a second, right? So sermon focus for the vast majority of people before this time would be largely, especially in all Protestant circles, would be focused on a certain section of scripture, right? When you go to church, you know, you, hopefully uh, uh, your pastor, when, uh, when he gets up and, um, you know, hopefully one of the first things out of his mind is, you know, open your Bibles, to this or open your Bibles to that. Um, and, and it really says a lot about us where we open our Bibles to. There's 66 choices, isn't there? There's 66 choices. Where are we going to go? We're going to go to Genesis. We're going to go to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to go to the uh, only the New Testament ever. We're never going to touch the Old Testament because we don't really know what to do with, you know, 77% of Scripture. You know, it says a lot about us based on where we go. And one of the things you're going to see 
in in the uh, in the post-slavery experience is a huge focus in sermons on Exodus and Ezekiel. And if you know anything about Exodus and Ezekiel, you know exactly why that is. There's a great deal of focus on this. This um, well, we'll talk about Ezekiel in a second. In Exodus, this this release of God's people from slavery. You can see the application of that makes itself. It's very simple to, to make this connection, almost a direct one-to-one connection. And boy, that'll preach to people who have actually experienced slavery as Christians to, to come out and to realize, hey, we're not the first of God's people to experience that kind of delivery. We're not, ex- we're not the first to experience, to, to, to experience that kind of release of something. In Ezekiel, you have um, an appeal to a much more um, esoteric, I think would be the right terminology, an esoteric experience of who God is in relation to me. If you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, if you haven't, and you just want uh, a trip, go read the book of Ezekiel, uh, a remarkable book of the Bible, one of the prophets, one of the major prophets, simply because of the length of what he wrote. But his experience um, uh, shows up in a lot of songs that are, are spirituals and things like this, uh, you know, um, where Ezekiel sees the wheels uh, in uh, spinning in the air and all these types of, um, uh, of pictures of, um, of God working deliverance in the midst of uh, leaders oppressing his people. And th- it's really quite remarkable stuff. Um, all the people of Israel were again in captivity in, uh, in Persia uh, and the expectation of imminent deliverance is a huge aspect of Ezekiel. And so you'll see that the sermons uh, in um, in heavily black churches at this time will be focused on things like the Exodus narratives, will be focused on prophets, especially like Ezekiel, um, will be focused on um, places in scripture that tended to, in history, not be largely the focus of churches, and understandably so. And this this is one of the things I absolutely love about church history, is that the gospel itself, it does not need you to be from a specific culture or speak a specific language. It doesn't need you in a specific setting, whether suffering or not, to actually have the word of God interact with you. There is there is word of God aplenty throughout it. And it's one of the reasons why I love to focus on as broad a part of the, of the canon as possible, because I can't even anticipate all the people that are in my church where they're at in their life and what would fall to them well. That's one of the great things about the Word of God. Uh, it's one of the great things about the church. Um, we are all screwed up, but the Word of God endures forever. We're just the grass. And I think it's one of the greatest things about a lot of this stuff to realize, look, even if I did live in that day, I probably would have been wrong on all sorts of stuff. Right? Even if I did live in that day. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hey, can you go down to mom? Go find, go find mama. mama. I know. It's okay. Sorry, my three-year-old just came in the room. <laughs> um, one of the great things about uh, some of this uh, aspect of history, one of the focuses of these things, is not to establish ourselves on the basis of whether or not we would have been on this side or that side. Um, that's not as simple a question to figure out as I think people think. Um, we would have been this way, would have been that way, is really not the point. The point is that we're all messed up. Hang on. We are all of us messed up. And it is God that works through 
fallible people to bring about his infallible plans. And we get to see this through sections of history like this, um, where we get to see Christians that were enslaved in the Americas free from that, and that affect their theology, that affect their their world, and even those who weren't slaves. Uh, you can see the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the early 1800s. These, these weren't slave churches. These were uh, these were freed black churches that were specifically founded out of their experience living in a land that wasn't their homeland. Uh, and that has drastic effects on theology. It has drastic effects on how we think about the world, especially everything else that we've seen about the 1800s. Hey, sweet girl. Hey, can you go find Mama? No, you don't want to find Mama? Okay, looks like my three-year-old's going to join us for class tonight. So when we, um, when we go into the time period after the emancipation, after the, uh, the history of these things, we get into a time of, of how a culture tries to deal with the concept of an entire people group set free. That's, that's not a small transition culturally, and it's not a small transition theologically. And so you get an interaction uh, in the Americas uh, in segregation um, that are specifically hard to deal with. Just gonna come in here and turn on my space heater. Sorry about that. Um, and so you will get uh, you will get some of these things. One of them that people call Jim Crow laws, um, uh, which is a specific statement towards uh, those who had um, designed laws intending to intentionally segregate all areas of culture racially. Hey, she just can't join us today. <laughs> um, to do that in the culture does not happen without affecting the church, right? You can't just have segregation in the culture Monday through Saturday without that affecting the church. In the culture, you'll get in the early 1900s, a number of organizations crop up to combat segregation. Uh, the founding of the NAACP happens during this time. Um, and a lot of the efforts against segregation were headed up by black pastors and Christians, brothers and sisters that were working to deal with a lot of this. Um, you also have occurring between 1910 and 1970, the largest ethnic migration in history that is not caused by either famine or war. And that is freed... Um, black uh, Americans leaving the South to go to the North, uh, upwards of 7 million people um, that settled mainly in the inner cities of the North um, and where there was plenty of racial tensions waiting for them in the North uh, and the rise of, at least in the Christian circles, of what's called storefront churches, um, uh, uh, small uh, inner city enclaves uh, of churches that, that uh, cropped up all over the place pretty quick. Um, really remarkable stuff. Um, segregation is much more of a cultural thing um, that affected the church, uh, and many in the church certainly had a hand in it. Many in the church certainly had a hand in fighting against it. Um, history is a messy, messy thing, and there's no simple, uh, this section was for it, this section was against it. It's not that easy. Um, now, when we, when we pass by things like segregation, um, you might want to. Uh, you might wonder why it is that I combined together what used to be two different, um, two different lectures, one on segregation, 
and slavery and things like this, and one on Pentecostalism and Charismaticism. The reason why I put them together is because the rise of Pentecostalism and its then subsequent effects on the charismatic movements had a whole lot to do with one of the earliest fights against segregationism, uh, segregationalism. Uh, and that was, to their credit, the intentional fighting against this in the founding of the Pentecostal denominations. Um, now, and so that's one of the reasons why I include this, because it's, it's one of the reactions against segregationism. Um, Pentecostalism and charismaticism, I kind of want to pivot a little bit uh, towards those discussions, um, really because this has a lot to do with the development, not only of black churches, but of, um, and unfortunately, I hate using these terms, but there's not other ones really to use at this point in history, um, but even of mainline, uh, more white churches, and, and this unfortunate reality of kind of developing in parallel to one another, even to this day, um, and uh, how to address uh, some of those things. And so um, I wanted to kind of open it up to Pentecostalism and the charismatic movements. And one, I wanted to define the differences because I think sometimes when we hear, if you're not a part of a Pentecostal church or know somebody who is, um, you know, you may look at the words Pentecostal and charismatic and think they're the same thing and really have no idea their history. Um, but I really want to define this out for us so that we can get a setting on this, right? The Pentecostal denominations were denominational uh, were denominational expressions of kind of a continuation of the first and second great awakenings. The charismatic movements come later. Uh, we'll deal with those a little bit later on, but I want to talk about Pentecostalism here at the start. So when I talk about Pentecostalism in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, get out of your mind what you currently think of Pentecostalism as, because it's basically nothing like the, how it started. You know, if you think of Pentecostalism today, I promise you, you're not going to, you're not going to have a mind's eye picture of early Pentecostalism. Early Pentecostalism looked much more like modern day Mennonites uh, and Quakers uh, then it looks like anything that's going on right now in Pentecostalism. Uh, you, uh, you have a completely different version of it in the early 20th century, and you have specific developmental uh, times in its own history um, that uh, are focused largely uh, in the world um, on, uh, on spiritual giftings uh, and things like this. So we're going to talk about all of this. I just wanted to put that out there. Um, the modern day contemporary charismatic movements and Pentecostals kind of defines definition or defies definition. Uh, it's about 500 million people now, just not in one country, but worldwide. Uh, and about half of that includes, um, that's about 250 million Pentecostals in those denominations and about another 250 million people that would just claim on some level, like I'm a charismatic you know, Baptist or I'm a charismatic Methodist or a charismatic Presbyterian, uh, fewer of those, but um, charismatic uh, Catholics uh, even. And so you'll get charismaticism is a, a, is a much a bit of a later thing. So, but we're going to start back at the beginning of Pentecostalism. One, because we can kind of put a nail, uh, a little tack right in the wall uh, of when that rose up and what it came out of. And it's a lot easier to trace out than the, than the uh, charismatic movements. Um, but, uh, here we want to kind of, uh, settle that in. So let's start with that. There's three, if you're taking notes, 
there's three eras of this um or three waves is i guess how the literature is currently talking about it um the first is classic pentecostalism so i'm just going to lay these out here so that you can write them out classic pentecostalism i'll give you the dates on all this too um the second is the charismatic renewals so classic pentecostalism will be from 1906 to oh slightly after world war ii so let's just say the 1940s <clears throat> the charismatic renewals that second wave is the 1950s and 60s a massive cultural changes massive uh theological changes in the 50s and 60s and the charismatic renewals are a huge part of that uh we'll talk about that tonight as well and then the third wave uh so first wave is classic pentecostalism second wave is charismatic renewals and the third wave is neo-charismatic renewals neo-charismatic renewals and that is time framed 1980s to let's just say to today but uh that that is probably changing right now we'll talk about that a little bit um that's 1980s to today if if you have in your mind if you didn't grow up pentecostal let me just help you out a little bit if you didn't grow up pentecostal and you hear the word charismatic, the first thing that comes to your mind, or when you hear Pentecostalism, the first thing that comes to your mind, this is largely the neo-charismatic movement uh, that's coming to your mind. That's the 1980s to today. Um, so, okay, let's back up. Let's talk about them one after another. So for these three, and that's what the rest of this lecture is about. So for these three, charismatic Pentecostalism, or excuse me, I can, no, sorry, classic Pentecostalism. See, I'm messing up my own self. Uh, classic Pentecostalism. This is before the Charismatics, um, shunned by other denominations, a very siloing concept of theology. Uh, let's go into this, right? Uh, a lot of the revival and holiness movements of the late 1800s, right? You remember this, uh, this kind of fervor of revivalism that has been, you know, we even had places in New York and New Jersey that was called the burned over district. So many revivalist preachers coming through insisting on pietism and, and changing a life and stop smoking, stop drinking, stop doing all this and just follow Jesus and all this kind of uh, talk. Those revival movements of the 19th century do give birth to Pentecostalism. It comes right out of that. Um, but it's also largely affected by the holiness movements. The holiness movements was, uh, let's just say that, but turned up to 10 uh, you know, all the way. Uh, we want full holy living, uh, removal of um, uh, of sin from every part of our lives, uh, any any appearance of sin. Uh, you'll have even to the extreme of you know, no wearing of jewelry, no cutting of hair for women, no makeup. Uh, very largely informed by things like Quaker ideals uh, and things like this. Those are the late holiness movements. Now, you look at that and you go. Well, that doesn't remind me of Pentecostalism. Well, not of modern day Pentecostalism, but the first Pentecostals were all like that. All like it. No jewelry, no cutting of hair for women, no makeup. Very, you know, this should affect every part of our lives. It should be this way. Um, there was, uh, now didn't I say, uh, where you preach on in the Bible defines a lot about what you think of. Huge emphasis on preaching on the book of Acts. Acts for Pentecostals was 
prescriptive. It, 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 it instructed us, it instructed us what we were to do. It didn't just describe the early church, it prescribed for us today how church is to be done. And so when uh, there were disciples, when they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. We should have that. The application <coughs> of the book of Acts becomes mandatory. Um, and I will point out, this is one of the things that not a lot of people talk about, is that a lot of this is an additional reaction against liberalism. Uh, liberalism and liberal theology had uh, so removed any supernatural concept of the world, uh, you know, in a lot of places, no virgin birth, you know, no inspiration of scripture, um, obviously no miracles, which means if there's no miracles, no speaking in tongues, things like this. And so um, it is not unfair to say that a lot of these holiness revivalist movements and even, yes, the founding of Pentecostalism is partly a reaction against liberalism and their rejection of things like miracles and spiritual gifts, all spiritualism, spiritualism as a whole. There's two figures uh, that if you're wanting to learn more about classic, um, classic Pentecostalism, you really need to know. Uh, one is Charles Fox Parham, Charles Fox Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M. He was part of the revival movement. He married a Quaker, um, very, very steeped into anti-authoritarianism uh, with regards to culture, but especially with regards to church life. Um, and a lot of his earlier pushes uh, have to do with kind of the late revivalist mentality. But he pushes in towards, uh, and these two are very important for his focus in ministry. Um, one is that he continues uh, the kind of the second great awakening push towards ministry towards the poor and the undereducated. And at this point in history, uh, especially as we uh, are dealing with uh, kind of the Wild West, if you will, uh, a lot of this kind of ministry will be focused on multiple ethnicities. It's not going to be one or the other. And so you will see early on that the dealings in uh, in the early Pentecostal movement is going to be multi-ethnic from the beginning by design. Uh, and that leads to a lot of wariness uh, for people that are looking at this from the outside. Um, that should not be missed. Uh, but the second part of his focus in ministry is that he connects the speaking in tongues with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, meaning if you don't speak in tongues, the idea that you have the Holy Spirit, you know, can't be. Now, historically, now I will say, I'll simply point out, that's a brand new teaching in history. Nobody's taught that before. Uh, historically, those two things have never been held together like that. They've always been treated separately. There's the gift of speaking in tongues. We can argue forever and a day whether that's still a, a happening in the church modern. And then there's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the past, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has always been seen as synonymous with salvation. Um, Charles Fox Parham here is teaching something new. Uh, and, and it will be stated as such, this separating of the work of Christ in salvation and the work of the Spirit in a second work or an outpouring uh, of, of something else, that these are two different things. So you have saved people and then you have uh, those baptized by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, 
and if you don't speak in tongues, we know which of those uh, camps you fall into, right? Um, you know, kind of this question of where does the work of Christ end and the work of the Spirit begin, it really brings into a lot of um, discordant concept about how the Trinity even works. Uh, I, I will just show my hands here. I don't agree with this at all, um, nor does nor has anyone ever taught that. That's a, that was a brand new concept uh, that these are that these are separate things. Um, but regardless of such, this is what Charles Fox Parham was teaching. Um, he had his own issues, uh, uh, you know, racially as it is, but um, but at least he, he saw as his ministry would be going out to uh, all of those, regardless of education level, regardless of financial level, regardless of skin color or anything. And that was really important for the beginnings of Pentecostalism, um, because you will uh, you will have a a specific. Uh, focus on regardless of who you are, we're not to be segregated, um, and uh, and that's quite that's quite a development in you know in early 1900s, uh, such as it is. Um, uh, let's see, Ken, you asked the question: Were the tongues actually languages at this time, as an acts? Okay, so that's yeah, <laughs> so you're going to get me in trouble with my Pentecostal friends. Um, the uh, so <laughs> if so, this kind of opens a can of worms, uh, unfortunately. Um, when you're when you're asking a question like that, because the the idea behind some of this stuff, if the spirit is doing a brand new work now, as has not been seen, because speaking in tongues was not a part of the church's history for 1800 years. Um, if the spirit was doing something new, which is what many argue, then what he's doing now is different than what was happening in on Pentecost. Now you can see even the name they come for themselves. Pentecostals, they're connecting themselves to the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, the speaking in tongues was actual languages. There's no two ways about that. And so the connection that they're making to look for themselves is directly back to Pentecost. Um, so from my side of things, I'm going to have to say, no, uh, it wasn't. And in fact, when we get into the later charismatic renewals, it's going to be stated outright that this is not that. This is a heavenly language. This is something else. Um, which pulls you out of the book of Acts instantaneously because the book of Acts knows of no other gift of tongues other than speaking a language you've never studied that actually exists. So like I don't study Russian or whatever, but say a guy whose heart language is Russian is standing over here and I start speaking the gospel and I don't know Russian, but he hears it in Russian. That's the speaking in tongues that's described in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, that's what you're asking. So was it like that? No, it wasn't like that. There, um, no. And so in, in the lack of that, the question kind of comes to this, and this this is where I kind of step on toes with this. If we're going to insist that Acts is prescriptive, then we're going to need to facilitate the expectation that these things uh, must continue on uh, in a different way. Uh, so if it's not going to be the exacting languages that we see in Acts chapter 2, then we're going to have to find a way to do a human version of that, which is what I believe the current version of speaking in tongues is, is a, a human thing. Um, same goes with healings, right? What do we see in the book of Acts? And we'll see this in the later charismatic times, right? You don't see today people you know, who are missing limbs or who are blind from birth or who are lame from birth or fully paralyzed instantly being healed. 
uh, you see human things, which is my arthritis, my bad back, uh, things that endorphins can help with and excitement can help with and things like this. We don't see withered hands instantaneously coming. We don't see the kind of miracles that are described in Acts. We see a very lessened version of them, uh, what I would argue being pushed off as them, because the stuff that we see in Acts is not happening today. I don't honestly care who you talk to or what you say, because... Even there in the book of Acts, we see uh, it being described that the Holy Spirit was doing extraordinary things. Extraordinary just means different than the ordinary, higher, more significant than the ordinary. Uh, in Ephesus, for instance, he was doing more significant things in Ephesus than he was doing in Jerusalem, for instance. And so we even see in the book of Acts a difference in these things. Uh, I would argue the same thing in history. Um but yeah, so yeah, where the tongues actually languages at this time is an axe. I don't believe anyone can do that uh, unless God gives them utterance. And now, do now it's another question to say, does God do that today? I have no idea. But what is being pushed in the modern instance of this is not comporting to what Acts chapter two is. If that answers your question, okay. Um, because now it's being claimed as a heavenly language rather than as a, an actual earthly language that you didn't study. Um, okay, so that's Charles Fox Parham. Uh, important guy in trying to understand the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, let's go on to one of his students. He taught a man named William J. Seymour, um, who himself was uh, the son of a former slave. Um, uh, Ken says, but it's okay if there are interpreters. Yes, Absolutely. Um, there should be interpreters, uh, and those are people who are able to interpret that language, having never studied it as well. Uh, something also that doesn't happen uh, very often either, um, in my experience. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I want to put that caveat on there. Uh, I just, where I am and from what I've seen, I've, I've seen way more abuses rather than actual, legitimate, verifiable. And that's kind of one of the keys for a lot of this is... Um, in the book of Acts, it was there verifying the message. It was undeniable what was happening in front of you. Um, you know, you can hear that in the responses of everyone on Pentecost. Um, so uh, it, it has to be up naturally apparent to the untrained eye and ear. Um, and that's, that's kind of something I don't really see happening these days. Uh, William J. Seymour, uh, 1870, he's born. 1922 is when he dies. Uh, it kind of gives you the idea of where we're talking about. Uh, William J. Seymour uh, fully buys into Parham's theology, uh, goes to California, and uh, from him, 1906, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, he takes part in. Uh, the Speaking of Tongues, uh, very importantly, now this is in L.A. This is early L.A., 1906. I mean, you know, I think Los Angeles as a town wasn't even 50 years old at this point. Um, you know, unsegregated meetings, Asians, Latinos, poor, rich, uh, women, men, a lot of racist reactions against these meetings, the Azusa Street Revival, you know, the Los Angeles Daily Times picks up on bizarre things happening on Azusa Street, like there's all sorts of things going on here. Um, but I want you to understand, uh, those are just the, those are the two uh, the figures that you should be uh, paying attention to if you want to learn about a lot of this. Um, but I want you to understand that there is a very high uniqueness to Pentecostalism when it first arises. Its focus on the gifting of tongues and the baptism of the Spirit 
and and kind of this new work of the spirit that's being done is happening um, in a segregated world inside the U.S. This is a thoroughly American. Uh, I don't know how to say it. A thoroughly American movement uh, and denomination. We have very American um, movements and denominations in, in the Methodist world, in the Baptist world, um, in the Congregationalist world. But like, I mean, honestly, the Methodist world starts out of the Anglican Church. Uh, the Baptist, you know, starts out of separatists from the Church of England, <clears throat> and they both find their home here and are really good with, you know. Um, with rolling with the punches on the frontier as a pioneer churches. But as far as for denominations that begin here and are thoroughly American uh, in this new kind of world, um, Pentecostalism becomes uh, one of America's uh, largest contributions to the area of uh, denominations in, in the world. Um, and it, it starts in Los Angeles and it grows throughout the world, uh, throughout the U.S. first and then throughout the world uh, pretty significantly. Um, it was very shunned by established churches. It's kind of hard for uh, old hat churches to, uh, to, establish, uh, to, to look at something that's just newly being established and seeing the new kid on the block and, and to look on that with favorability, unfortunately, um, especially with with practice that's so different. Uh, you know, if you went to kind of a mainline church in the early 1900s, the vast majority of what's being dealt with is, is this intellectual discussion, liberal versus, you know, uh, versus kind of historic Christian faith. How do we deal with modernism and all this kind of stuff? And then all of a sudden you get a new church that settles in three doors down and they're, they're talking about gifts of the spirit that you've never even seen in your church. It's very different and it's really hard. And again, the, the, the aspect is that it began in a segregated situation, which means it by nature grew up unsegregated. Uh, Pentecostalism, when it goes, will run very fast. It's going to spread from the West to the south, and then slowly up to the northeast. Now, again, the resistance in the northeast really doesn't have as much of a kind of concept of the segregation issue with it. It has much more to do with its resistance to something that's new. Uh, and so you'll get you'll get the the beginnings of the Pentecostal denominations. That's the biggest difference between Pentecostal and Charismatic, as we're about to discuss. The Pentecostal denominations. You'll get the Holiness Pentecostal Church, nineteen eleven. The Assemblies of God, 1914, the Foursquare Gospel, 1923, the Church of God of Prophecy, again, early 1900s. All of this comes out. you got to understand how recent this is, right? All of the 500 million Christians worldwide today that can call themselves either Pentecostal or Charismatic or something along these lines can trace their history back 115 years. That's it. And, and that, that is an astounding reality. 500 million uh, followers of something that began in 1906. I mean, that is, that is only a handful of generations. Uh, it, it is truly an astounding thing. When it gains traction, it explodes throughout the United States. It explodes overseas. And even to this day, outside of just the Catholic Church, of people calling themselves Catholics, 
for specific Christians, the Pentecostal slash charismatic movement, you know, amount, uh, uh, you know, homogenous as much as it is cloud is the largest group of Christians holding to certain ideals like that. I mean, that's larger than the entire Eastern Orthodox Church put together, all of them. It's it's simply an astounding amount of people. Um, you know, so uh, so that, that <clears throat> excuse me, expresses to us then what is the next phase that we're looking at. And that is the second of these three waves. That is the charismatic renewals. Now, Pentecostals are a denomination. The, you know, the, the Holiness Pentecostal Church, the Assemblies of God, these are denominations. Charismaticism and the charismatic renewals or the charismatic movement, however you describe it, is not a denomination. You should not expect that you're going to go down and see the Holiness Charismatic Church. That's not what charismatic uh, ideals and movements did. In the 1950s and 60s, Pentecostalism has become its kind of own series of denominations. But the charismatic ideals took what um, practice was happening in the Pentecostal churches and imported that to other churches. Because the practice was so different, because the the speaking in tongues, the, the focus on the gifts and miracles and healings and, and these types of things, those types of things could not just could not argue their way into a Presbyterian church. It could not argue its way into a Baptist church. It couldn't argue its way even into a Methodist church directly. It it came in through the influence of how we do things. And this really speaks to the idea of there's there's belief or doctrine, and then there's practice. Now, practice affects doctrine, and doctrine affects practice. And so if you're not going to be able to argue uh, your way into a an old mainline church with brand new concepts of, you know, the Holy Spirit, this or whatever, that really defeats itself inside the creeds, <clears throat> then you're not going to want to come into those churches uh, through the front door of doctrine. You're really going to want to take one of the side doors of practice. And that's what's going to happen. That is what the charismatic renewals are. They are the taking of the practice that's inside Pentecostal churches and importing those practices into other churches and installed right straight on in, uh, adopting a number of the Pentecostal behaviors and the theology that goes along with it, at least as far as the people are concerned. This is much more grassroots. Um, and so you will have charismatic believers uh, inside Methodist churches, Catholic churches, Baptists, Lutherans, uh, and you say Catholic Pentecostals. Oh, yeah. The Catholic Pentecostal Conference of 1968. Go look it up. <laughs> the Kansas City Charismatic Conference of 1977. Enormous. Uh, in fact, so quickly does this start taking hold in the late 60s and early 70s that it is argued that there were, at least by the AP, the Associated Press, uh, argued that uh, this new charismatic movement uh by the mid-1970s, has grown to at least 10 million adherents in its practice. And that is including the Pentecostal world. Now, again, 
this movement is only about 50, 60 years old at that point. Now, it's been another 50 years since then, and it's exploded to 500 million, but it should just show you how significant this became, how quickly it became that way. Uh, a lot of the earliest habits of uh, that came out of the holiness movements, things like not cutting hair, things like no wearing of jewelry and things like that, that stuff did not survive the cultural moves after World War II. And so Pentecostalism... Uh, really pivoted itself out of a lot of those things. But as far as for its beliefs and the speaking of tongues and the gifts of the spirit and things like this, um, you know, uh, found its way not only into the Pentecostal denominations, but found its way into all the other denominations as they were affected by the charismatic remove, uh, renewal movements. Um, we're basically adding a whole layer of either pietistic emotionalism on top of uh, older theologies, if you will. And so all of a sudden, we have something new, something that hasn't really happened before, which is a movement that goes throughout and sh has shared common practical threads throughout all sorts of denominations. It's not like this is just happening in the Methodist church, or this is just happening inside the Baptist churches. This is happening across the board throughout all churches, starting in America, and it will find its way throughout the world. Um, now, again, I one of the things I said early on was uh, early Pentecostalism was partially a reaction against liberalism. And this kind of, uh, this kind of focus on, you know, anti- supernatural things. And so we thought, well, the, the gifts we have are supernatural and so forth. What's going to happen from the 1980s and onward is that not only in America, but worldwide, cultures that do not have a anti-spiritualism bent like America did and does, uh, well, it's about to give that up, but it's going to find very, very fertile ground in places like Africa and places like Southeast Asia and India, where you have a closer concept of how spiritual and physical world meet. In America, in the early 1900s, you don't really have that. And so you'll have this kind of rise in the middle of that with all sorts of churches resisting it. But in in uh, African Christianity and in Southeast Asian Christianity and even the subcontinent of India, you're going to find a much more receptive concept to the charismatic ideals about how the world works uh, rather than say, uh, you know, let's sit down and discuss the Westminster Catechism. You're not going to find that kind of uh, involvement. And so you're going to see an absolute explosion over the last 50 years throughout the world of the charismatic ideal and the Pentecostal denominations. They are going to be able to uh, talk to other cultures more readily. And a lot of that, I will say, has a whole lot to do with the spirit in which it was founded to not be focused on one culture or another, but to appeal broadly across this and attempt to connect every type of Christian to the spirit directly. And this, I think, is a laudable goal um, but it has had some of its uh, issues, just as any denomination has. Uh, I'm not Pentecostal. I'm not charismatic. Um, uh, but I will say, uh, as I say about all sections of church history, we have things to learn from our brothers and sisters, regardless of what their background is. Um, 
And so let's look at this third wave because this is the one that most of us will be more familiar with, and then we'll um, then we'll kind of end here. And here you can probably you'll probably feel a little bit more of a pinch of this um, if it seems a little bit more familiar. Um, yeah, let's go into this 1980s to today, uh, the near charismatic movement. Again, if you didn't grow up Pentecostal, uh, this is probably what you think of when I say the word charismatic or Pentecostalism, the neo charismatic movement. Uh, 1980s to today. Uh, there's a lot of people that argue that we've crossed into a fourth wave, but I'm not going to discuss that right now. Uh, you know, that's that's for, you know, another 10 years down the way. <coughs> for right now, let's just say this has been a 40-year-long wave, uh, 1980s to today. Um, this is a wave that extended the expectation of the book of Acts from just the speaking in tongues, which, by the way, is not the only thing mentioned in the book of Acts as far as the miraculous is, but... The healings, the prophetic, the exorcisms, demon possession, um, you know, even even certain goals of financial prosperity being connected with the idea of healing. We'll talk about this. The whole health and wealth things uh, were the bad sides of this, uh, the health and wealth gospels. Um, and then the, the false prophets side of this, where people make prophecies about Jesus coming back. Uh, you know, I mean, there, you know, this is this is. 80s and 90s all over it. Uh, you have, you know, uh, what is the book? 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. You know, things like this, where there's a huge and heavy focus on the return of Christ. Again, theology never happens in a vacuum. Ever, 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 ever. Theology never happens in a vacuum. You have two massive things that will affect uh, the concept of end times theology uh, from the last 60 years. One of them is the end of World War II, and the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. That awakens a lot of people's expectations for the end of the world. Uh, but also in America specific, you will have post-Cold War, uh, post -Cold War uh, end times predictions. Uh, this is kind of just a, a cultural, theological zeitgeist. This is just what's floating around the air is this fear of the end of the world at any moment, nuclear proliferation, all sorts of things going on. There becomes a huge focus on the return of Christ, uh, only spawned on further uh, by things like the Left Behind series um, and, and all sorts of these things that just that, that uh, express this idea that there's this imminent, constant expectation of Jesus coming back any day. It shows up in a lot of songs, uh, you hear uh, a great deal of songs that are going to come out of this, um, a, a remaking of how people experience worship rather than just take part in it. Um, again, the appeals to emotionalism in songs becomes much more significant uh, of a goal rather than a happy side effect of a song. Um, and so you will get the rise of the neo-charismatic movement. This will permeate all churches everywhere. It just does. It goes absolutely everywhere. Um, there's there's an expectation. Um, this doesn't mean every single church. I mean, every denomination is affected by this on one way or another, which makes it so unique. Um, the speaking in tongues, the expectation of healings, uh, whether we lay on hands or um, use oil to anoint or whatever the case may be, uh, even the making of prophecy, uh, the, the focus on dreams, uh, the God told me to tell you uh, that he wants you to do this type stuff. I've had these things said to me many times. Uh, all of this comes out of the neo-charismatic movement. Um, 
uh, even the the modern day concept of exorcisms and and demon possession uh, separated from the Catholic Church uh, and kind of the classic uh, putting forth of this 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 really has a more muted version of this. And again, I will simply put forth, I am not charismatic. I do not agree with these things. But and so when I'm talking about them, I'm usually speaking about things that I would say are very um, human versions of what we see in the book of Acts. Um, instead of the speaking of tongues, which is a different language that somebody can actually hear the gospel spoken, it becomes, uh, you know, uh, it becomes a human babbling of some forth. Uh, even claimed nowadays as a, as a heavenly angelic language, not as a uh, not as an actual human language. Healings move from what is described in the Book of Acts as uh, healing the blind or healing a lame man or a, or uh, even bringing someone back from the dead. We don't see that. We see arthritis. We see you know pain, unverifiable things. It gets really really difficult. Prophecies that are made that are not fulfilled. Many 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 prophecies. Uh, happens all over the place. Um, Jesus is going to appear with me on stage, Benny Hinn, these types of things. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see. I know this is more of a... Okay, can you ask a question? I know this is more of a splinter practice, and I'm not being flippant, but when does the snake handling and strychnine drinking emerge? Oh, yeah. So snake, <laughs> snake handling and uh, drinking of poison. So a lot of this will come from the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and the expectation that the early church dealt with this. You will see, for instance, in the book of Acts, um, <clears throat> is it Paul, uh, when he was shipwrecked, <coughs> was it on Malta? I think it was on Malta, where he was bit by a snake, and then all the locals expected him to die, but he just didn't. Uh, and so snake handling becomes part of this. Um, so, yes, that kind of stuff, you'll be able to drink uh, poisons and it's not going to hurt you, things like this. That kind of expectation is part of this as well. Um, and that rose, if I am unmistaken, that arose, I forget if it's Alabama or Georgia, uh, in the, oh man, you're, you're really taxing my memory here. I believe that was in the 50s or 60s. And it was a part of the charismatic renewals. Um, I'm not sure, well, one, that never gained enormous following, uh, for certain reasons, uh, that being that you can't actually be immune to snake bites. Um, and so it never gains a huge following. I am not, I'm not up on the whole strict nine drinking, uh, part of this, but I do know that, uh, that does arise at a Southern version of the, uh, of the charismatic renewals. Um, I probably should have listed that in some of the signs and wonders, but it never becomes like a worldwide phenomena or uh, or even a nationwide one. It really becomes a very localized thing. I'm not even sure of how many churches even hold to that today, uh, individual churches. It's It can't be that many. I don't know how many it is, though. Um, and no, I don't think you're being flippant. It's a legitimate question. That, that kind of stuff happens. Um, you know, so you'll get a lot more... Uh, uh, expansion of this, because to be perfectly honest, the charismatic movement is really good at media. I mean, really good. Uh, and here's here's one of the things that most people don't really ever really think about, right? With the rise of things like TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and this is obviously you know kind of the whole Pentecostal charismatic movement has moved way past the uh, views of makeup and hair that it originally started with. Um, you know, it becomes this <clears throat> this kind of uh, very cleanly presented um, 
you know, expression of prophetic or of the slaying in the spirit or of the um, of the expectations of healings or the expectations of financial prosperity teachers that become synonymous with a lot of this, like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland uh, or uh, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, you know, these types of these types of personalities uh, become uh, what you know, lends to the televangelist phase of the neo-charismatic movement. And it does lend a lot of, of uh, at least, if you will, evangelistic power of the neo-charismatic movement that, that caused a worldwide explosion in a lot of this. Early satellite adoption, uh, it's, it really just uh, it was even stated that technology enabled, and I will quote here because it's simply a, a astounding, uh, a democratization of access to the Holy Spirit. Uh, unquote. So I that kind of that kind of look towards technology as as kind of the ubiquitous solution for a lot of these things. Obviously, the rise of the internet helped remarkably as well. Um, and a lot of this preaches really, really well because the whole. Health, wealth, and gospel, uh, health and wealth preaching that's attached to a lot of this. And I don't mean to say everyone who's near charismatic holds to this. I'm just saying there's a lot of it that gets attached to it because financial prosperity is seen as a continuation of miraculous healings. Well, I'm healing my bank account kind of idea. Um, and so it's born out of that expectation of the miraculous. And so you will see claims that are made, uh, you know, if you send me you know, a thousand dollar seed money, you know, God will bless it tenfold. These types of um, abuses, uh, which I'm not going to use any other term. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that that's okay. It's not okay. Uh, but that kind of teaching was used and it appeals to so many because it, it gives a supernatural concept of money uh, and of possessions, things that in our culture are so simply seen as a materialistic concept. Uh, gets expanded in the area of uh, of charismatic theology, um, <clears throat> and this really, especially in the charismatic movement, changed a lot of the elements of Pentecostalism. Um, the idea that the true church always has miraculous signs now, not just speaking in tongues, but in healings, in prophecies, um, and and financial prosperity is an extension of these things. Um, and, and this really because, uh, becomes worldwide and it goes across all denominations. And so it really becomes the influence of Pentecostalism amongst other Christians leads to the charismatic movements and the neo-charismatic movements. There's other ones that are going on these days, uh, today even. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, again, it's like everything that we see in church history. Good thing, bad thing. Honestly, it's a thing. Um, same with internet, same with, uh, you know, satellite programming and all this kind of stuff. These are things. How do we deal with them? How do we work through them? How do we work through, uh, having, um, brothers and sisters that differ from us in all sorts of ways? And that was one of the things that the charismatic movement for all of its, uh, for all of its eccentricities, it brought a lot of Christians of different denominations together in a way that's never happened before. Um, you know, how does that work a hundred years from now? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, um, I can even say as a non-charismatic and as a non-Pentecostal, um, I at least appreciate the desire to reach across aisles that have been closed off for way too long. 
um, I can at least uh, recognize that. I do des I do appreciate the desire of people to live in accordance with scripture. I will take issue from my own self with the the um, the misapplications of things like the book of Acts um, or the misappropriation of things that were for the apostolic age. Um, but again, uh, a lot of people see themselves as part of a renewal, uh, not even just a renewal, but a... Um, uh, a uh, restoration movement, this idea of restoring the church back. It's been, it's been gone and broken for 1900 and some odd years, it's been gone and broken for all this time. And we're, we're getting it back to the first century. Um, we can't get back to the first century. We're in the 21st century and we have this whole history to deal with. And, uh, and it's a remarkable series of events. And there's all sorts of, uh, there's all sorts of difficulties and all sorts of uh, graces in it. Um, just kind of like every church, isn't it? Uh, that's that's the dirty deal of uh, of fellowship. We we don't always remind each other of each other, and that's actually a good thing, so that we can remind each other of Christ instead. Uh, I hope that's the long term effect of this. We shall see. Um, that ends this discussion, long one uh, on segregation, Pentecostalism, and charismatic movements. Thanks, Ken, for some of the great questions. Appreciate some of those. Um, I, I appreciate all of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I appreciate uh, uh, everyone's attention tonight. Lord's blessings to you. We'll be back next week. And again, uh, after August, we're going to be looking at some very, very specific um, studies. So if there's a figure or an event or a, a theological controversy or a period of history that you want a better overview for, or you want a a deep dive in. Oh man, please leave them in the comments. Uh, you can email me at any time. You're welcome to do so. Um, and uh, and I look forward to uh, working through some of that with you guys. Until then, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, don't pick up any snakes or drink any strychnine until you ensure that your biblical interpretation is proper. <laughs> Lord's blessings to you all.